0: Those are great medley uh, worship songs, uh, great hymns and great resurrection songs. So thank you so much. It's great uh, to have Steve and Janet and Joyce uh, sing that. And I so appreciate Steve's worship leadership every single week and Joyce, of course, as well. And Janet, every time she comes to town, we get her to sing with us and for us. So thank you. You're very gifted. So we're going to go. Into Luke 24. Children are dismissed at junior church, though, first. Children are dismissed to junior church, so you may make your way back to junior church. And we're going to go to Luke chapter 24. And so I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 24 or a Bible that uh, either Bible you brought with you or you could use a Pew Bible or even your phone. Just keep on the Bible app. And there's lots of good Bible apps. If you need to know of any, I can share them with you later on. We're going to look at Luke 24, 1 through 12 and look at Luke's resurrection account. Jesus lives and because he lives, we will live again. Jesus lives and because he lives, we have true life now. Jesus gives us abundant life, a fuller life, a complete life. We, we live life with Jesus. Jesus lives, and because he lives, we will live again. Do we believe that? Amen? Today I want to walk through Luke's account of the resurrection. My theme is obvious, Jesus lives. That's the obvious theme of this passage, Luke 24, 1-12. Uh, but I want to make an application. Marvel at the great things God has done. And be like these women. We're going to read about women who are just a perfect example. Be like these women, these early women disciples, and share this good news with others. As we look at this passage, we're going to see the women were the first to go to the tomb. The women were the first to share this message with others. But we're also going to see that Peter marveled at the great things God has done. And those are applications. So we're actually going to walk right through this passage. So if you're in your Bibles, uh, I invite you just to follow along. I'm going to read verse by verse. We're going to walk right through it. First here we see the anointing of the tomb. In verse 1 we see the anointing of the tomb. Verse 1 reads, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. You know, I need to put this passage in context, because as I repeatedly say, the chapters and verses were not original to the Bible passage. They were added much later on. So Luke 24 follows Luke 23. And this chapter follows just perfectly. In the previous chapter, Jesus was crucified. In Luke 23, Jesus was crucified. And in Luke 23, verses 50 through 56, Jesus is buried. Jesus was buried in Luke 23, 55, just a few verses before this, Jesus is buried. And this is very, very important. The women knew where he was buried. They knew where the tomb was. And in Luke 23, 56, Luke 23, verse 56, it specifically tells us that they rested on the Sabbath. On Good Friday, what we call Good Friday, Jesus is crucified. He's buried in the tomb. The women saw the exact tomb, saw where he was buried. They saw it, and then the women go home, and it tells us they rested on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day of rest, and that brings us to Luke chapter 24. The women are going to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. That's what it says right here in verse 1. They're doing this because they could not do it on Saturday. Because it was the Sabbath. They were not allowed to work on Saturday. It's the Sabbath day. They're not allowed to do anything. It was a day of rest. These women followed the commandments for the day of rest. So Jesus is crucified and buried on Friday. They skipped Saturday because it was the Sabbath. And now that brings us to Sunday. In Luke 24, verse 9, we're in chapter 24. In verse 9, the passage will, will record who these women were. The women are heading to the tomb. These women had traveled, traveled with Jesus in Galilee. Luke 23, tells us that the women had traveled with Jesus in Galilee. Mark's gospel identifies these women as Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome. Again, later on we'll see exactly who they are right here. But each gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each gospel account adds extra details to the resurrection narratives. In John 19, 39-40, it tells us that Nicodemus, Nicodemus had prepared about 75 pounds for Jesus' body to be anointed with. And maybe these women had not known that. Maybe these women have Nicodemus's anointings that, are, that were prepared. They're going to anoint Jesus' body for the burial. They have prepared spices as well. Now, let, let's put ourselves in their world. Because many times we read the Bible and it's just a separate story. We don't put ourselves in their world. Let's put ourselves in their world. What do you think these women are thinking? What is this like for these women? They've traveled with Jesus for some time and they saw, they actually saw him crucified. What was this like for them? They saw Jesus beaten beyond recognition. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. They saw that. The, the, the Romans of the first century knew how to torture someone. They, they, they perfected it. They had a cat of nine tails, which Jesus was whipped with. And then he's put on the cross. And they would crucify someone on a main thoroughfare so everybody could see it. And they would know, don't mess with Rome. These women saw that. They saw Jesus go through all of that. What are they thinking right now? They, they, they traveled with Jesus, as I've said. He was a teacher for them, a discipler, a kind of a paternal influence even. They saw Jesus heal people. They experienced Jesus' transformation in their own lives. They, saw trans, they experienced Jesus' transformation. They listened to Jesus' teaching. Do you think they might be filled with emotion right now? I think they were. I think we would be. So they are going to anoint Jesus' body. An interesting little note, the Jewish people anointed the body. The Jewish people anointed the body in order to cut down the odor. The Egyptians embalmed, but the Jewish people would anoint. That's what they're doing. They're going to the grave to anoint the body. Next we see the arrival of the tomb. Let's read verses 2 through 3. It says, this is the, the exact scripture, verses 2 through 3. And they, found, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Oftentimes, it was a one-ton stone, a big, big stone, and oftentimes it would sit in a, in a type of um, position with a groove so it could be kind of rolled away. Or sometimes it would even be a block-type stone that they had to move somehow. It was a big stone. And they did not actually know who would roll away the stone. If you read Mark 16, 3, in Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verse 3, it records the women pondering, who's going to roll away the stone? How are we going to get into the tomb? Maybe they thought the soldiers would do that. Maybe they thought the soldiers could move the stone. Think about this. They were were not expecting the stone to be moved. They were not expecting the tomb to be opened. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verses 2 through 4, records a great earthquake. Remember, each of the Gospel accounts contributes to this. So Matthew's Gospel records a great earthquake. And when the great earthquake happened, the stone was moved, and it says the guards fainted. I find that humorous. Two days earlier, these best of the best. These Roman guards are beating Jesus. They're mocking Jesus, putting a crown of thorns on his head, saying, here, you're a king. We'll give you a crown of thorns. And and, and then they crucify Jesus. These are some of the best military men in the world. And guess what? When Jesus is resurrected, when he walks out of that tomb, they faint. Many times we'd distinguish between Jesus and a martyr. A martyr doesn't really have a choice. They die for their faith. Jesus had a choice. He did this willingly. He did it for you and me for our salvation. He did it totally willingly. If he was not willing, he could have called down 12 legions of angels to his rescue, which is something like 12,000 or more angels to his rescue. They were waiting. They were just waiting for him to give the word. They would have helped. But he went through it willingly. And now he's resurrected. And these superior Roman military men faint they faint. The Roman guards were tough. I read once a few years ago that the Roman military did not defeat other militaries because they were better than the others. You know, they were going to war in Germania and, and even over to England and all of the known world. And we often, oftentimes think they had better military capabilities. And, and they might have. But in addition to that, They didn't stop. They were not easily intimidated. When they went to war and they went to battle, a lot of times the other military fled. They got scared. They ran away. They were some of the best of the best, but they fainted when Jesus walked out of the tomb. So the women find an empty tomb, verse 3 says. The women enter the tomb. The tomb is empty. They do not see, it says, the Lord Jesus in the tomb. They do not see the Lord Jesus. Now that's very interesting because this is the first time in Luke's gospel in which Luke designates Jesus as the Lord Jesus. It seems as though after Jesus is resurrected, that's when Luke calls him the Lord Jesus. All throughout the book of Acts, which Luke wrote, Luke calls him the Lord Jesus. But this is the first time that Luke calls him the Lord Jesus in his gospel. They did not find the Lord Jesus in the tomb. You know, have you ever gone through a situation and it did not play out as expected? You expected it to go bad and it went good. Maybe the opposite. You expected it to be bad and it, you expected it to be good and it went bad. This is for those women, right? They expected Jesus to be in the tomb, they expected to anoint him just like you would any other body. But he's risen from the dead. Now is a good time for me to talk about something called literary spotlighting. Literary spotlighting. Many times we see differences in the gospel accounts and we look at them and we think, why doesn't Mark say this? Why doesn't John say this? Why does Matthew say this but John doesn't? Or Luke say this but Mark doesn't? And there's something called literary spotlighting. Lee Strobel, Lee Strobel, in one of his books, was interviewing one scholar who talked about a technique modeled by the historian Plutarch, and it is called literary spotlighting. Literary spotlighting was a technique. Uh, it's like a, the- a, a theatrical performance where there are multiple actors on stage where the lights go out and the light shines on one. We know it in drama, right? We know it in Broadway, we know it in, in, in acting, if you go to a play. There's multiple actors on stage, but the light shines on one. That's what's going on here. The other gospel accounts, the other gospel writers, they knew everything that was going on, but they, they honed in, they shine. they focused on just, you know, different details in each gospel. Literary spotlighting, I like that idea. Basically, each gospel writer is aware of the other people and details, but they're shining the spotlight on certain people and or details, Moving on here, in verses 4 through 8, we see the angels beside the tomb. Let's read verses 4 through 8. While they were perplexed, the they as the women, while the women were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Verse 6. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And verse 8 says, And they remembered his words. So right here we see angels. Luke is the only gospel that mentions two angels. Remember, literary spotlighting. Luke's gospel is mentioning Two of the angels. We see their radiance. They, they are arrayed in dazzling robes. Luke records that the women are perplexed. They see these. They're not expecting all of this. They're expecting to find Jesus' dead body in the tomb. And they're not, they're not expecting all this. The angels give them reassurance. The women, bow, the women bow their faces to the ground. It was common if they saw angels to bow their faces to the ground. We see that in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 10. They bow their faces to the ground. It's, 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 a, it's a way of showing respect. Can you imagine these women's response? The angels say, what do they say? They say, why do you seek the living among the dead? I imagine they're a little nervous. They're more than a little frightened. It says that these angels just kind of popped out of nowhere. I'd be a little frightened too, okay? They're a little nervous. They're a little frightened. They're overwhelmed in grief as well. They're probably not thinking clearly. They probably have grief brain going on right now. Grief brain means that when you're going through intense grief, your, your mind can focus on the common everyday things, but a lot of times you're not really focused on other, other type of things. They've probably got grief brain going on. And the angel, and then they find an empty tomb. They see angels. The angels say, why do you seek the living among the dead? I imagine the women were like, what, 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 what do you mean living? We... We, we saw him buried just a couple days ago. We saw him in the tomb. We saw the tomb. We saw him crucified. Nobody can get up and walk away after a crucifixion. Nobody can get up. And, oftentimes they died in the beating before the crucifixion. What do you mean living among the dead? We saw the tomb closed. What do you mean? The angels gave a reminder. The women are reminded of Jesus' words. The angels remind them of Jesus' words concerning his crucifixion. The angels remind them that Jesus said he would be betrayed and he would be crucified. The angel said, remember, he told you when he was in Galilee. Now, that's very interesting because Galilee was at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. So the angels are reminding the women, hey, remember three years ago at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he told you about this. Three years ago at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he told you that this was going to happen. Further, the angels remind them of Jesus' words concerning his resurrection. He would rise again on the third day. In verse 8, Luke tells us that they did remember. After the angels reminded the ladies, they did remember. Moving on, lastly in this section, we see the account concerning the tomb. Let's now read verses 9 through 12 in our Bibles. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest, to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, this is who the women were, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter, Peter rose and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. So now we see the messengers. The women go back to where the other disciples are, which, which, which it says that these are the apostles. And they go back to the 11. This would be the 12 disciples minus Judas. Judas had betrayed Jesus. And Matthew's gospel, as well as the book of Acts, tell us that Judas actually was overcome with remorse. And he actually hung himself. So this is the other 11 disciples. And it says that others are there. Luke tells us that others are there. And the women tell them what had happened. They tell the disciples what they saw. Now, we see right here the other disciples didn't believe, did they? Most of them ignore the report. The story sounds like an idle tale, like nonsense. Back then, the testimony of women would not be credible. And by the way, this is a proof of the Gospels. This is a proof of the Scriptures. If they were just making this up, they would have never included women because women were not credible witnesses. In their culture, women were not credible witnesses. But this is how Jesus did it. Jesus had the women go first. And the the Gospels accurately record what happened. And so the women give the testimony. We saw the angels. The tomb is empty. Jesus has risen. The, The other apostles are like, it's nonsense. You need to go get some rest. You're in grief. But Peter, what does Peter do? It tells us Peter Runs to the tomb. Peter runs to the tomb. Actually, if you read John's gospel, we find out that John also ran with Peter to the tomb. And John outran Peter. So John is a little bit faster. So if it's a cross-country match, John's going to beat Peter out, okay? But Peter's probably older, so that could be why. But they both go to the tomb. And this passage closes. Peter sees the linen wrappings. But Jesus is not in them. And Peter... Goes home marveling at what he saw. Peter goes home marveling at what he saw. Now, it's interesting, if you look at Luke, uh, at the next, uh, at verses 13 through 34, Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 34, it records Jesus visiting the disciples, and Jesus literally opens their minds so they can understand the scriptures. Jesus literally opens their minds and tells how the whole Old Testament, it says the law and the prophets, that would be the whole Old Testament is about him. So, Jesus meets them on the road to Emmaus. It's called the road to Emmaus. He eats with them, he opens their mind, he teaches them. And this is Luke's resurrection account. I want to make some applications and then give you a story that you probably won't be able to forget. How can we apply this? We can have hope because Jesus lives. We can have hope because Jesus lives. First Corinthians 15 tells us that if Jesus was not resurrected, our faith is futile, if futile, it's useless. We are of the of people most we be pitied, but Jesus lives. We have hope because Jesus lives. We have hope in this life now. We have hope in our eternal life because Jesus lives. We have hope. Because this story is real. This is a real story. The resurrection authenticates everything else about Jesus. The resurrection authenticates everything else about Jesus. Jesus walked out of the grave. The, you know, the stone did not have to be removed for him to get out. We, we in, in John's gospel, it records Jesus walking through walls. The stone was removed so we could see in. So the disciples could see in. This authenticates everything else about Jesus. We can trust Jesus' teaching because death could not contain him. We can trust Jesus' teachings because he rose as he told them he would. We can have a relationship with Jesus because he lives. You hear that? He walks with me. He talks with me. We can have a relationship with Jesus because he lives. And I want to ask you, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you know him? We're going to come back to that. That's the most important application today is that you know Jesus, is that you have a relationship with Jesus. We serve a risen Savior. Since Jesus lives, we will live again. But we also live with him now. In John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He is the vine, we are the branches. He is the tree trunk, so to speak. We are the branches. We live attached to him. We live the Christian life with him, in a relationship with him. We must trust him. We must have the faith of these women who did something. They went to the tomb. When everybody else was moping around, they went to the tomb. And they shared it, didn't they? They couldn't hold it in. They shared it. We must be like Peter who marveled at the awesome things of God. Do we marvel at the details that God works out in our lives? Do you? Do we marvel at our awesome salvation? How awesome this is. Jesus rose from the dead. Do we marvel at answered prayers? Do we notice answered prayers? Do we worship God? Do we notice all the bad things that God prevents from happening? Like literally prevents. Oftentimes we notice all the bad things that happen, but what about all the bad things that don't happen? My kids were watching a show about the miracle on the Hudson, you remember that probably, two thousand nine. Train's going, a plane, not a train, a plane is going down. They're trying to find a runway for it to land on, an emergency landing. And uh, the captain, you know, Solly says, we're, we're going to land in the Hudson. They land in the Hudson. Everybody lives. How awesome that is. Do we marvel at how God rescues people, how God saves people? How many cars pass each other in the interstate safely? How many things does God prevent from happening? Do we marvel at the great things God is doing? Or do we only notice the bad things? Think about how amazing it is that a baby develops in the womb. How awesome it is that a baby can develop in the womb and then the baby's mother can even feed and provide for the baby. How awesome. We are, the Bible says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. There's studies done about the thousands of nerves that have to connect just so that baby can see when the baby is born. Our bodies are amazing. Do we marvel at the great things of God? Do we marvel about the resurrection? Death could not contain him. In the year 18, 1899, 1899, two famous men died in America. One was an unbeliever who had made a career of debunking the Bible and arguing against the Christian doctrines. The other was a Christian. So an unbeliever died, and the unbeliever was always speaking and writing against Christianity. The unbeliever's name was Colonel Ingersoll. And they even had Harvard lectures named after Colonel Ingersoll. Colonel Inglesoll. His death was sudden and came as an unmitigated shock to his family. He was an unbeliever. The family had no hope when he died. His body was kept in his house because they could not bear to even let the body go they were not prepared he was an unbeliever they had no hope after death they were inconsolable eventually they had to remove his body from the home because the corpse was starting to decay at length the remains were cremated and the display at the crematorium was so dismal that some of the scene was even picked up by the newspapers and communicated to the nation at large Ingersoll had used his great intellect to deny the resurrection when death came, there was no hope, absolutely no hope at all. And the departure was received by his friends and family as an uncompensated tragedy. That was the first person that died in this illustration in 1899 the second person was D.L. Moody Moody Bible Institute uh, is named after him Moody Radio if you listen to it named after him D.L. Moody was the first kind of Billy Graham evangelist he was preaching all over preaching the gospel all over the United States of America he's preaching the gospel even in England a great 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 powerful evangelist and he died and his death was triumphant for himself and his family. He knew Jesus as Lord and Savior. He declared the gospel, and when he died, he had hope, and so did his family. Moody had been declining for some time, and his family had taken turns being with him. On the morning of his death, his son, who was standing by the bedside, heard him exclaim This is what D.L. Moody exclaimed Earth is receding, heaven is opening, God is calling, you're dreaming. Father, his son said. D.L. Moody answered, No, no, Will, this is no dream. I have been within the gates, I have seen the children's faces. For a while, it seemed as if D.L. Moody was reviving, but he began to slip away again. He said, Is this death? This is not bad. There is no valley. This is bliss. This is glorious. By this time, D.L. Moody's daughter was present, and she began to pray for his recovery. But he said, no, no, Emma, don't pray for that. Don't pray for that. D.L. Moody said, God is calling. God is calling. He said, this is my coronation day. I have been looking forward to it. Shortly after that, Moody was received into heaven. At his funeral, family and friends joined in a joyful service. They spoke and they sang hymns, they heard the words proclaimed, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57 Moody's death was a part of the victory. You know, when we know Jesus as Lord and Savior... We have nothing to fear when it comes to death. The Bible says to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. Jesus gives us hope now, the fuller life, the complete life, the abundant life, but he also gives us life everlasting. And I want to ask you, do you have that hope that Jesus offers? Do you know him? Jesus lives. We too will live again. Jesus lives. We too can live now. Do you know him? Some of you have heard this. We can sum up the Bible with the acronym that spells gospel. God created us to be with him. That's the first letter in the gospel, G. God created us to be with him. We see that in Genesis chapters 1 through 2. In the first two chapters of the Bible, we see that God created us to be in a relationship with us, with him. God created us to be in a relationship with him. God wants us in a relationship with him. But our sins, they separate us from God. We see that in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were expelled from the Garden of Eden. Our sins separate us from God. That's the O in the acronym gospel. Many times we don't think our sins are that bad. That's because we are comparing ourselves with someone else. But that's the wrong standard. We must compare ourselves with God's standard. And God's standard is righteousness, holiness, perfection. One sin separates us from God. Sometimes we think, well, in that case, God just wants to get at us. God wants to be mean and vindictive. That's not the case. God is holy, God is perfect. God is righteous. God is completely other than who we are. And one sin cannot be tolerated by his holiness. It's part of his being. The best example is gravity. If I go up on the roof of the church and I slip and I fall off and I hit the ground, gravity makes me fall to the ground, right? We would all acknowledge that. Gravity is not trying to get at me. Gravity is not thinking, oh, he's going to fall. I'm so glad. I'm so excited. I'm going to get at him. No, gravity is part of nature. God's holiness is part of who he is. And God's holiness burns up anything unholy. So our sins, they separate us from God. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we find out that sins cannot be removed by good works. And that's from Genesis 4 through Malachi 4, the rest of the Old Testament. Our good works don't cover sin. That creates a dilemma. Because God loves us and he wants a relationship with us. So God took action. He sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins and rise again. Paying the price for our sin, that's the P in the word gospel. Paying the price for our sin, Jesus died and rose again. Jesus Jesus lived a sinless life. So when he went to the cross, he took your sin, my sin, the world's sin upon himself. He took the wrath of God in your place, my place. He could do that because he was fully God and fully man. The E in gospel. Everyone who trusts in Jesus alone has eternal life. The rest of the New Testament. In the Ellen Gospel, life that's eternal means being with Jesus forever. Revelation two five. Have you trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior? The Bible calls us to confess, believe, trust, and commit. Confess we are a sinner in need of a Savior. Believe in Jesus. Believe in his free gift of salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his unique son, Jesus, that whosoever believes in him, which is a trust, whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall inherit everlasting life. Have you believed? Confess, believe, trust, and commit. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and go to a state of prayer. I want to ask you that important question. Are you living for Jesus now? Have you confessed you're a sinner in need of a savior? Have you believed in Jesus as a one and only savior? Have you trusted in him? Are you committed to him? Some of you might have done that years ago, but you're not living for him. It's time to rededicate your life to him today. Do it today. You're never promised tomorrow. You're never, ever promised tomorrow. Some of you have never committed to Jesus. Do it today. Commit to him as Lord and savior. Please keep thinking about this. Take this seriously. D.L. Moody, who I referenced a minute ago, D.L. Moody was preaching the gospel in Chicago, late 1800s. And he told people, don't decide today. Go home and think about if you want to commit to Christ. Well, after that, the great Chicago fire happened and thousands of people died. He said, I'll never do that again. You're not promised tomorrow. Are you committed to Jesus as Lord and Savior? Do it today. Confess, believe, trust, and Commit. I'm going to ask all of us to say this prayer together, all of us together, whether you said it before or not, I'm going to ask all of us to say it together. If you want to commit your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, say this totally from your heart. But whether you've done that years ago or you're doing it the first time, let's say this together. Repeat after me. Repeat after me. Lord Jesus, Jesus. I confess I have sinned and missed your perfect standard. I believe in you Jesus. I believe That you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I am committing my life to you. I am committing my life to you. Please come into my life. Please come into my life. And help me to live for you. you, live for you. In Jesus name, amen. Jesus name. If you said that prayer for the first time, And you meant it from the bottom of your heart. You're not saved by the prayer. The prayer is just telling God what you're doing. If you said that prayer for the first time, a minute from the bottom of your heart, you are saved. You are committing your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And you know what? God so desperately wants a relationship with all of us. The Bible says angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. You want to make a worship service in heaven when we repent and turn our lives over to Jesus. It makes a worship service in heaven. God wants a relationship with all of us. So if you said that prayer for the first time, or, re- or maybe you rededicated your life to God, share that with someone today. It's cause for celebration. Because Jesus lives, we too will live again. Because Jesus lives, we have hope. It's a celebratory event. Jesus lives, and so can we. I'm going to invite the praise team up for the closing song. As I always say, if you have questions about God or the spiritual life, talk to me. Even if you're a non-believer, even if you're militantly against Christianity, if you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, talk to me. I'd love to help you. I'd love to help you. If you're a Christian that has doubts, sometimes doubts come to Christians too. Talk to me. I'd love to help you. And lastly, our altars are open. If the Holy Spirit got a hold of you and you just want to come forward for prayer, the altars are always open. So I'll turn it over to Steve for the closing song and closing prayer.